Askell Leadership Podcast with Jeff Barton. Hello and welcome to another of our Askell Leadership Podcasts. This one I'm recording on the train back to Suffolk from Cardiff, where I've spent a very enjoyable, informative couple of days at our Askell Cymru Conference, which has had great attendance from uh, school and college leaders all across Wales, uh, plus some Welsh Government officials who joined us. So you're going to hear from Barbara Lund, our field officer first, who will explain the distinctiveness of the Welsh education system, which has uh, some similarities to other parts of the UK, and some other quite special features and some quite special challenges, but also a sense of optimism about what they're doing with a new curriculum there. You'll hear from some head teachers. Uh, you'll hear, for example, from Maureen Harris, who's just finished her presidential year with Askell Cymru, and Ethne Hughes, who's been doing some really interesting work alongside Philip Accordingly, who you'll also hear from talking about uh, how you get research to make an impact in the classroom. As someone with a degree in English and linguistics, I couldn't resist the opportunity to talk to the interpreter who was sitting at the side of the conference hall all the time. That's Rhys George, who just gives us an insight both into the Welsh language and also the role of an interpreter. And finally, a couple of our speakers. Ian Gilbert uh, was with us yesterday. Uh, He talks on the podcast, and so was Ross McGill. So you've got uh, a great selection of people who came to visit Wales, people who live in Wales, and people who were celebrating the Welsh education system. Hi, I'm Barbara Lund. I'm the field officer for Askell Cymru in North Wales. Uh, And for those people who don't know, tell us what a field officer does. In, in Wales, initially a field officer would, would deal with casework and support members with day-to-day uh, in, issues in relation to their employment, but we also get involved with uh, policy work as, as appropriate in order to support Tim Pratt with that. Now, uh, we're sitting in Cardiff at the moment. Wales uh, is very distinctive in all kinds of ways. Just kind of give us the flavour of some of the issues uh, which are going on in education in, in Wales. Well, at the moment, we are completely devolving away from England, so our education system is becoming very bespoke for Wales uh, on all levels really from a strategic level uh, at a Welsh government level down to local level the role of local authorities and the ever-growing role of the regional consortium of which there are four right across Wales so for our members um, in this ever-moving environment they're having to cope with a lot of change really. They are, and so you haven't got the the whole kind of um, move to multi-academy trusts that we've seen in England. But we, and so we've got quite a lot of layers, haven't we, going on here? So you've still got something, I think it's 22 local authorities. Then you've got these four consortia. By definition, that means that money is going into all of that. And so funding, I'm, I'm assuming, is one of the big issues, as well as recruitment in Wales. Uh, yes, funding is a significant issue right across Wales. Um, the money, as, as has always has done since the LMS formula, gone through to the local authorities, but increasingly so, a significant part of local authority monies is now being uh, passported straight across to the consortia. So we are talking well over £100 million pounds there. Wow. Uh, and, and finally, so if uh, a member from Wales phones the hotline and it is referred through to you, what are the kind of issues you are dealing with in supporting people? What we are very uh, clear about is lines of accountability because the local authority, or unless it's a faith school or a foundation school, uh, are still the employer. But increasingly, with the growth of the role of the consortia, members do get confused um, over about 
who should be doing what really. So I would advise them to contact Hotline because one of the, uh, the religion officer or myself will be able to support them with that. Yeah, because it sounds to me just from, from talking to lots of people here is if there's a bit of a frustration that sometimes they're being held accountable by the consortia, by the local authority, by ESTIN, which is the equivalent of Ofsted there, and so it will feel like there's quite a lot of heavy monitoring going on, right? Well, we, we do have a, a, a metaphor of weighing the pig, and yes, we do see a lot of that. But we are working very closely with Welsh Government, who do understand the issues and the challenges, and they are looking to redefine roles and responsibilities and lines of accountability. And Askel Cymru, you know, we welcome that, really, because it is our members, usually, that are in the middle of all those tensions, uh, from funding to accountability, uh, in relation to the role of HR, even as we move to work more on a regional basis, it's who is responsible for what. And we are working very hard to support members in seeking that clarity. Barbara Lund, thank you very much. Good evening, I'm Maureen Harris, I'm President of Askell Cymru. And you're also a head teacher, so tell us about your school. Um, my school is in Merthyr Tydfil. It's a voluntary aided Roman Catholic high school, serving what we call the Heads of the Valleys, so that's about 40 square miles. Uh, our school population also consists of uh, 25% EAL children, mainly from Poland, uh, the Philippines and Portugal. And I think that will surprise people. I think people don't realise the extent of EAL. It's also got, uh, I remember from visiting, it's got this wonderful view over the valleys, hasn't it? Um, it has. Uh, uh, and I think it would be fair to say it's a school which uh, is run down in place. I mean, you've not had lots of money spent on it. You're very polite. <laughs> You're very polite. And yet, it just I just remember it, it kind of exudes a sense of, of joy. Just tell us the, the kind of things that you do in the school to give you that, that sense of community. Well, um, uh, as you may be aware, we are actually planning for a new curriculum at Key Stage 3 called Successful Futures, based upon Professor Graham Donaldson. So we've decided that it being a skills-based curriculum, that the first fortnight of the school year should be an opportunity for all young people to uh, enhance their skills. So we collapsed the timetable for the first fortnight and we provided enrichment opportunities um, in things like rock climbing, uh, teamwork, you know, building up the skills, uh, entrepreneurship, um, elements of the Welsh Baccalaureate, such as their, their social challenge. So that meant that they had to go out into the community and actually undertake some sort of social work, whether it be uh, helping the elderly with their gardens or uh, litter picking around the streets, something that would um, integrate us more into the community across the heads of the valleys. Wonderful. Uh, and finally, just just talk about your year as president. So you've just stepped out from being president. Um, when, when you look back over the year, what are the, going to be the landmarks for you in terms of um, what you've enjoyed doing, what you feel Askell in Cymru has achieved? I think the first thing, actually, is that struck me is that um, SEC in Scotland, Askell in England, Askell in Northern Ireland and Askell in Wales, we all have a shared vision which is centred around a holistic view of the child, that we work in partnership with our parents and wider community to enable a child to reach its full potential. I think that's the first thing. No matter how diverse our education systems are becoming, we have those shared values in common. And then in terms of Wales, what struck me is how Welsh Government are listening to Askell Cymru, that there is a real openness, a dialogue and an eagerness on their part to work in collaboration with the teaching profession and its school leaders.
You've been a wonderful president. Thank you for oh, what you've done. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. I am Ethna Hughes. I'm the head teacher, teacher of Eskil Brunellian in Old Colwyn. Uh, but you've had a particular role over the past year, haven't you? Could you tell us what that is? Yes, I've worked over the past year with Welsh Government on a seconded basis and with the Gwaii Regional Service as well, looking at self-improving school systems, looking at professional learning and a particular focus on initial teacher education in Wales. And that's because uh, the approach of the Welsh Government is that we need to what kind of reprofessionalise teachers, give teachers a sense of what they can learn from evidence and so on? Yeah, I think it has been recognised by the Tabor report and then subsequently by Furlong that we really do need to be research rich, but we need to be research savvy as excellent producers and consumers of research. And one of the reasons I wanted Philippa to work with us in the North was because I did not want research just to be seen to be in the prevail of the uh, HEIs, that it wasn't something that practitioners were doing to professionalise the profession. And it's reflected in the professional teaching standards, it's reflected in the work around Donaldson, it's reflected in all of the major policy shifts in Wales. So if we don't make the connections through professional learning and really looking at ourselves as learners who actually do take our own craft seriously, then we're not going to be doing the deed, we will be done too. So I was very, very sure that I wanted us to be actively participant, active participants in this entire process. You know, it's, a, it's, it's really ambitious and quite often we hear the rhetoric about teachers as researchers that ultimately will be judged when we, by the impact we make in the classrooms. What, what kind of lessons have you, you learnt about what you need to do about the culture within schools to make that happen? I think one of the key lessons was to be to go narrow to look at specific named learners that we wish to shift and we wish to move individual children in a small group rather than to start with some big group of kids who are an homogenous mass but actually look at a small group who've got a specific problem who need learning unlocked and go deep into that in a spiral of inquiry that you're able to then evidence and come out of and I think the other thing for me that I've learned very significantly from it is that as a school you need to set a culture of research up by not having a blame culture if it doesn't go well and having people's egos parked if it doesn't go well because ego gets in the way of proper research because you feel you have to succeed and you don't. You learn so much from not succeeding. I'm Philippa, Philippa Cordingley from the Centre for the Use of Research and Evidence in Education. Welcome back to our podcast. Now we're in Cardiff this time and there's something exciting going on in Wales, isn't there? Talk us through what's happening. I just love working in Wales. There's something about the connectedness of the vision and the way the leaders are connecting with the government's vision that is quite unique. I was speaking at a conference of... Uh, secondary school leaders uh, in Cardiff earlier this year and Andreas Schleicher from OECD was saying he thinks that the nature and process of the construction of the Welsh policies is where Ontario were 10 years ago. I think that's <laughs> that gives me goose pimples. Yeah, that's great. Um, now, we've been talking about research, which yeah. inevitably we've been talking about research, and we like the idea of, of teachers y- using, and you were kind of saying customising that research, so you have to kind of adapt it. So I understand that. What I'm interested in is the responsibility and the role of leaders in this, and particularly head teachers. Okay, so the first thing is, you know, everything in Curate is about understanding that using research is work-based professional learning. There isn't, you know, it's not knowledge mobilised. I don't care about mobilising mobilizing knowledge. I care about mobilizing teachers to fulfill their potential. But it, the minute you think about it being work-based professional learning, there's the clue. Mm. 
it doesn't exist if there isn't a professional learning environment and there isn't a professional learning environment if leaders aren't making it. And there's just so much untapped potential. So one thing that we know from Vivian Robinson's amazing best evidence synthesis is that the thing that makes most difference over time is leaders promoting and modeling professional learning. The thing I notice when I work with leaders is what they're doing all the time is learning in every way they can with every pore of their body about how to make the school a more profound learning experience for everyone. But mostly they do it in private, hiding their learning under their arm like they did in, the, in, 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 in school. And that the results of their learning are school policies. Well, hey guys, what I want to say to you is promoting and modeling professional learning means doing some of your learning around your policy development in public, inviting your colleagues in, helping them see your learning journey before the policy is fully formed. And I know that for teachers it feels like you might, for leaders it might feel like you're wasting your time, but it isn't because your learning is infectious. So if you learn in public, they'll get that making your learning visible is part of the professional enterprise. And I just, when you see schools doing this, it's like magic. Uh, Rhys George, uh, Welsh language interpreter. Just, just for those of us who don't know anything about Welsh, what, what, how would you describe it? Well, you can trace the Welsh language back to the 6th century, to the early poetry we found of Aneirin and Taliesin. Um, I've got a feeling it probably goes back a lot further than that. But uh, it's, it's difficult to describe it as such. I think that the big challenge in Wales is that um, the Acts of Union in, in 1536 and 1542 um, ensured that the English language was the official language of the courts and of the country at that time. So we're talking about several hundred years of challenging times for the Welsh language. And the Welsh language now... It is particularly prevalent, if I've understood it, in certain areas, in the north, the west. Is that, am I kind of understanding that? Well, yeah, according to the previous census, it's definitely stronger in, in West Wales and North West Wales. But we are, we are seeing an interesting um, phenomenon, if you like, where a lot of young people are moving to Cardiff and having children in Cardiff. And then when you have children, you need people to look after your children so a lot of the parents are following their children to Cardiff so we're seeing an increase in the number of Welsh speakers in Cardiff compared to say 50 years ago. And, and is, is Welsh your first language? Yes um, although I was raised in, in Bridgend which is a, an English speaking area my parents were, were both teachers but, but from West Wales who'd moved to the east to to find work. What, what, what happens with Welsh? So for, you know, for, for example, in terms of, if, if, if I talk about French, I know that I can do a, a variety of different tenses by, by inflecting the verbs. Give me a little kind of nerdy insight into how Welsh actually functions. Well, we have this, um, what we call mutations, which is a horrible name, but it's where the, the words change depending on uh, the particular context and the, the gender for example, so um, the Welsh word for uh, man is dean, but uh, if you were saying two men, it would be dai dean, so the D has changed to a double D, 
which has a slightly different sound. And, and this is extremely difficult for, for those new to the language and Welsh learners. Uh, and, and the last question, so what are you doing when you're um, translating? When you're, what's, what's the process that you're going through? There is no process, you, you just do it really. You just, I just speak at the same time as the Welsh is being spoken. And you can do that almost without you know, self-consciously thinking about doing it. You're just you, you're, what you, you're hearing something, and you're then able just to say. Yeah, it. I'd say it's, it's as natural as, as walking. By now, <laughs> initially it was it was a challenge, but after 20 years, it's just become second nature. What you do? That's fascinating. Thank you. So I'm Ian Gilbert. I'm the founder and managing director of Independent Thinking, and a writer, and a speaker, and a, an educationalist. And just tell us about Independent Thinking for those who don't know about it. So it's a company that I set up uh, over 20 years ago. Now we we don't employ people. We just bring together associates, some of the top. Um, practitioners, some of the top uh, um, innovative people in education, just good people doing all sorts of interesting things in all parts of education. We, we speak, we run conferences, we write books, we try and uh, encourage schools to do what they believe in, which is put the child at the centre and, and move forward accordingly. And in the time I've known you, you've lived in various places. So you've been in South America, you've been in Hong Kong, Wales, <laughs> Suffolk, I think. Um, all the out- just, just, just looking in on the UK from outside, what, what's your impression of what education feels like, if we can generalise? When generalising, what I see is what's going on in Scotland and now in Wales is in keeping with what a lot of countries around the world are trying to do. And they're saying, yeah, we, we've done, like in, whether it's China or South Korea or um, Singapore or Hong Kong, we've, we've done that, teaching to the test, getting loads of facts. We can do that, we, we know that that's not enough for the 21st century we know our kids need to be able to do something different so they're moving in what they perceive to be the direction that they say the UK as a whole is moving in so they want to have to point out that England is, uh, that Wales and Scotland are going in that direction but England you'll see going in the opposite direction and they and they, people just can't believe it people just can't understand why you can have a, a creative uh, education system full of passionate practitioners who put the child at the centre and dismantle all of that in search of whatever it might be, PISA results and, the, and basically the selling off of the education system in England. So what would your message be to, to school and college leaders about what they should do in order to make sure the children have the kind of education you subscribe to? I think it's, um, it's, it's the bravery um, I, I mentioned when I speak we, we have a sort of a double pronged push with independent thinking which is brave heads and lazy teachers and <laughs> the brave heads is a big part of it, it's to be able to say, I, if they don't like it, they being, whether it, I don't know, the inspectors of the Daily Mail or whatever it might be, then they come and see me and I'll take them through and I'll explain it. But that frees up the teachers to be able to do the things that we know are the right things for our kids, as opposed to just passing that fear um, to do the right thing and that fear, passing that fear down the line, if you like, to the teachers, which then works its way through to the kids. And that fear comes out as stress and that stress comes out as unwellness in many ways and, and just to be clear when you talk about lazy teachers just just explain what that means because there's something quite liberating about this concept i think the lazy teaching idea is is uh, well um in singapore they talk about teach less learn more so it's the idea that we can get as teachers our sunday afternoons back if we just reframe how we set things up in the classroom in such a way that so we start the, the, the planning from the point of view is how, how many things can I, that I was going to do in the classroom can I pass over to the kids? So they benefit, they learn, they get to, um, they get to think for themselves uh, and also I, that frees me up to do the things that only I, the teacher, can do. If we're just, it's just a question of a teacher at the front the whole time, kids sitting in rows, the, the question that I put to teachers is what are they learning while you're teaching them? 
And if they're learning, subservient, sit down, sit still, be quiet, do what you're told, that's one thing, and they'll get their exams. Or, through lazy teaching, other approaches, they can learn. They can still get their exams, that, that we, we've proven that, but also they can learn how to think for themselves, how to be independent, how to make mistakes, how to put them right, how to work with others, how to lead, how to follow, and all the other things that we know that everybody around the world is saying this is what we need for the 21st century world of work, if you like. Hi, my name is Ross McGill, otherwise known as Teacher Toolkit on Twitter or the blog teachertoolkit.co.uk. Ross, you're here at the Askell Cymru conference. Give us a flavour of what you've been talking about this morning. I have just uh, presented to you know, 150, 200 school leaders, uh, teachers uh, at Askell Cymru. Um, I've presented seven provocations, uh, essentially to change the way that we do things, uh, particularly things that are not statutory. You know, Why do we do it? It's whether we want to measure teachers, beat them on the heads. Um, so I've uh, suggested that we shouldn't grade teachers. Uh, a kind of new research area for me is looking at appraisal you know, for, for performance or to better teachers in terms of the research inquiry to better themselves and benefit the school. Um, I've challenged the notion of verbal feedback, you know, let's bin our verbal feedback stamps. And what else have I said? I've said quite a lot of things. I've also <laughs> talked about mental health and social media illusions that, you know, the perception of teacher toolkit is that I'm always tweeting, you know, life is rosy, but we all have mental health. Um, so I put out an image to the audience where I've kind of showed the impact of an Ofsted inspection had on my, my personal health. Um, and that we all need to talk about it a bit more to show that, uh, you know, we all work really hard, we work very long hours and it can have actually an impact on us and, and we wonder why we have a, a recruitment crisis when people are leaving the profession who don't necessarily want to but are forced out for health or for external reasons. You had quite a, quite a lot of uh, stern words about Ofsted, in fact, there. So do, do you think that, uh, that education would be better without an inspection system? No, I, I do think we should have an inspection system. We need a standard. We need to have a framework. Um, you know, I, I've had probably 10-plus Ofsted inspections dating back to 1997 when my, I got a slip of paper and no-one talked to me and I had to open it and it said inadequate on it. Um, to you know, being part of the dialogue, looking at inspection handbooks with Mike Cladderbowl and Sean Harford, having a decision in all those, um, in terms of the, the the terminology, has been quite helpful. And it's nice to see that Ofsted do engage with teachers and bloggers. But comments such as from Amanda Spielman at the weekend, I know it's probably an anecdotal comment from a question in the audience after her official speech. But the more bloggers talk about the actual things that are going on at grassroots level, the better for us all to expose the stuff that we're still uh, asking our schools and school leaders to do. Or perhaps, you know, my other provocation was that maybe it's what school leaders are asking their teachers to do for fear of what Ofsted might say. And I think an immediate solution overnight is, yes, let, let's keep to kind of grading schools per se, but let's just move to good or not yet good. Um, and then, you know, not all, every school can be outstanding. Um, we have different challenges working different contexts um, but we all want to be there and I think if, as soon as we stop celebrating with big banners or that we all want to be this elusive perfection of outstanding uh, it's not sustainable and I think we could resolve I think actually we have a retention crisis I think we could actually bring a lot of teachers back into the profession I was very much put off by headship because of the fear of league tables and and gaming Ofsted because I, I don't want to do it I, it's not my passion my passion is the classroom let's just go back to Ofsted because you, you, you're speaking at a conference which is about bold leadership and you gave an example of where uh, during the inspection an inspector asked you to provide evidence about the amount of CPD the school had been doing and you knew that actually that kind of evidence shouldn't be asked for yeah why did you just say no I'm not going to do it no it's a very good question um, under the the 
the reality of an inspection when you're on the back foot you're very nervous um, this was the end of day one and by then we already started to get a feel that it wasn't going well even though we weren't officially told uh, and guidance does say that the head teacher should be told if special measures is likely so we weren't told but we started to get feelings based on the mood and, and what we were being asked so I literally had 20 minutes with a, a one day inspector of the two day process we were talking about CPD I kind of had to unpick all the work we'd done in three years and the learning policy uh, day two I had to go and beg for a teaching and learning uh, conversation stroke learning walk which lasted 50 minutes and then end up, ended up with a debrief on a playground bench for five minutes um, but yeah it's a good question why didn't I um, the devil in me wanted to test the inspectorate and I kept that information to myself for six months because I knew I was resigning and I knew that I didn't want to uh, put it out there while the the quality assurance took place of a 45 day special measures report so I didn't want to put the the school in the spotlight um, or, or my colleagues and kids more importantly so I kept it under my hat and then 1st of September I blogged it and it wasn't to belittle anything it was to to kind of share these things still go on they put school leaders or schools in difficult situations and actually what my message is is that we can't entirely rely on our inspectors because they're still doing the things that they shouldn't be doing despite Sean Harford and everyone else's good work to clarify uh, what's what inspections should do and how the framework works um, so in, in, in answer yes I could have challenged it but um, I remember when graded lessons stopped three or four years before that, I, my ears were burning because I wanted to hear them say, what grade would you give that lesson? So I wanted to just test on the ground if actually how we jump through hoops because of Ofsted frameworks, how does it actually turn out in reality in a classroom uh, in schools? But I, I've got responsibility for leading 19,000 yeah. leaders, deputies, assistant heads, business leaders, all, all of those people. What's your message for what we should do? You know, there's no cavalry out there who's going yeah, to come it's and a tough one, but uh, my, my message is don't do the things you don't have to do. But that's a real fine line between paying your mortgage and then evidence in what external people might come in and essentially judge your school and then perhaps put you in a particular situation where it puts your job at risk. Um, so it's a real fine balance. Um, but I think if enough of us do it and we start to blog about it and challenge the notion that you know we're not adding fuel to the fire, we're actually just exposing the, the things that are still going on that shouldn't and get school leaders more engaged with research. Um, you know, the DfE workload poster, you know, if 50% of school leaders haven't seen that, then please print it off or email it to your colleague or put it on the back of your school toilets so colleagues can get every opportunity to read some guidance and just protect our teachers from the marking burden, the data collection and start to do a bit more um, to help one another. Mm, we need to put the joy back in the classroom. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, 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 we need the joy back. Good. Ross McGill, thank you. My pleasure. The Ascot Leadership Podcast with Jeff Barton.